Welcome to Timberline Windsor. Thanks for joining us this weekend. We are a church family that strives to let love live in every facet of our lives. We at Timberline Windsor desire everyone, every man, woman, and child that calls this church family home to be a part of Connections. To join one today, visit our website or download the Timberline app. Enjoy today's message. Well, hello. Just in case you don't, my name's Dick Foth, and I'm Vintage Point Two. Just like, I love that. Thank you, Jan. Wasn't that a great for all you old dudes? You're not old. You're vintage. So, and for all of you online, thank you for joining us today. So, I'm a I'm a young pastor at the University of Illinois back in the day. Okay, a lot of years ago. And a lady makes an appointment with me. She comes in and she sits down and she was struggling. And she said, you know, I'm not just having a blue Monday. I'm having a blue month. Maybe like a blue year. Okay, and we had a conversation and I'll tell you more about that. But not long after that, I met a guy who said, how you doing, John? He said, you know, <laughs> I got to tell you, Dick, I'm, I'm down so low I got to pull down my socks to look around. You know, and that's a funny line. But the circumstance is not funny, is it? And we're in a series called Healthy Minds. That is how we perceive things sets the stage for how we respond to things, how we walk through them or get through them. And as the physical pandemic sort of fades, if you will, at least where we are, so it doesn't have that lethal punch that it had for some time, There's another pandemic that we all know about, we've read about, it's got far-reaching, longer-lasting effects, and it's called this this thing, anxiety and depression. And it's the, uh, those are the ugly twins, right? Anxiety and depression. All of us have known pieces of that, I think, along the way at some level. And the, the sort of the battle cry of those things is, I give up, I'm out, no hope, I'm done. And we who believe in a God who cares and knows about us aren't exempt from all that. You know, we're just not. And you say, are, are you going to talk about depression today? Because if you are, I'll probably be more depressed at the end than at the beginning. No, no. No, I mean, l- let's talk about what's true about life and say, so how does Scripture and how does God speak into that and encourage us in those real life situations? So today, I want to share a story, many of you know it, of a powerful godly man in scripture in the old testament there are a whole bunch of prophets prophets were people who spoke to the people from god priests in the in the culture of the day were people who went to god on behalf of the people this is an oversimplification but prophets in the old testament were people who came and spoke god's word to the people and you have two two big guys okay if i can say it that way that way, two, two big dogs in the Old Testament. You got Moses, who, who leads the nation of Israel out of Egypt after hundreds of years of slavery. He's the quintessential guy. If you go to the House of Representatives in the United States Capitol and you sit in the speaker's chair and you look, there are, there are a bunch of busts up on the wall and Moses, you're looking right at Moses, at least their understanding of what he might have looked like, right there, right? So he, he was one big guy. And then you've got this other guy, Elijah. And here's the deal. In Jesus, in the New Testament, he has this moment 
when he's on a mountain and he has his very close disciples and the glory of God shows up so that it's so intensely illuminated, it just hurts your eyes apparently. And Moses and Elijah are with Jesus on the mountain. You, you can read about this in the Gospels. I don't know how all that works. But, you know, for Moses, it's his first time in the promised land. He didn't get to go in. So he's there. And then you have this other guy, Elijah. So Moses leads the people out. And as soon as they get out and get into the promised lands, they start connecting with pagan tribes and, other, and they start following other gods. So the rest of the story in the Old Testament is God continually sending people to get them to come back to the one true God, to Jehovah, Yahweh. And so that, that was Elijah. He spent his whole prophetic career challenging the people to come back to the one true God. And, and it comes to a head when Elijah confronts the then king of Israel and a, a wicked guy by the name of, of Ahab and as even, I don't think this is a word, but even his wickeder wife, Jezebel, right? Ahab and Jezebel, Jezebel were, talk about ugly twins. I mean, that, that, was, that was like the worst. But it comes to a point where Elijah calls Ahab out, if you will. And they have a confrontation. So let me just frame it this way in, in, in just a moment. First of all, here's a godly man, Elijah, who comes to this really point of significant conflict. And he loses his moorings. He has blurred vision. He literally has a desert moment. And what we're going to share today is this great and fascinating account of what happens. Let me just start here with my first thought. Life is not a straight line. Any of you who have been around the sun a number of years, you know that life doesn't go like that. Life goes like this, you know, up and down and sideways and over. And we may have this, but circumstances do this a lot of times to us. It's full of ups and downs and surprises and pain and tragedy and imponderables, right? And we, as human beings are pretty sophisticated people. So God has made us in an elegant way, if I can put it that way. Complex might be another one. We're all connected. When I was in my late 30s, I was a sort of a newly minted college president in California. And I'm 38 years old and I'm feeling pressure in my chest. And so I go to see my doctor who's a believer and I walk in and he does the tests. And after I'm done with the test, he says, you're under stress. I said, I knew that. I didn't have to pay you money to tell me that. I know that. He said, well, let me show you this. And he sat down and he drew a sketch that looked something like this. And he said, here you are. Here's your body, your spirit, and your emotions. They're all connected. And they interact with each other. And, and where they interact is right here. Watch this. This is good. And let, let's do that again, Jamie. I just want to do that one more time. This is where they interact. It's, it's magic. Anyway, that, if you get sick in your body, it can affect your emotions and it can affect your spirit. If you, in fact, have an emotional trauma, most doctors would say more than 60% of all diseases or ailments are linked or fueled, at least, by emotion. Sometimes emotions make us sick physically. And it feeds into our spirit. We have a hard time seeing God when we're emotionally down, way down here, you know, pulling down our socks down there. Or if I do something that is wrong, we call it sin in scripture. I missed the mark. 
I disobey, I don't do the right thing when I should do the right thing, that can affect my body, that can affect my emotions. So we're these elegant creatures. This is all intertwined in us. So looking at that, what you say, so, okay, what causes this thing we call depression? Well, almost anything, all right? Unresolved anger. Disappointment, loss, grief, genetics, brain chemistry, crushing circumstances. But a big one in here is fear. It's interesting that the New Testament, that the scripture doesn't say that the opposite of fear is hate. Or excuse me, opposite of love is hate. It says the opposite of love is fear. And that perfect love, complete love, chases away the fear Because fear, for us as human beings, is our default position. When we get scared, we have this thing in our brains called the fight-flight syndrome, right? When we get scared, our adrenaline goes up, and we either want to do this or we want to scamper. That's, That's built into us. So here's a classic story from Scripture about this fellow, Elijah. And I want to just tee it up this way. If you were to open your Bibles... And read chapters 17 through 19 of 1 Kings in the Old Testament. 1 Kings 17 through 19. This is the story you get. Elijah's God man, God's man in Israel. He's going about doing things. And God says to him in chapter 17, I'm going to send a drought on the land. Try to get their attention. Right? That's what I'm going to do for several years. And in that same chapter, he goes to a widow who has a young son. And there... He asks for some food and she's out of bread and there's this miracle that happens and they get oil and oil to make bread and all of that. Then her son gets sick and he dies and, and, and Elijah in the story brings him back from the dead. You say, this is crazy business un- unless God's involved and it's not crazy business because he's the life giver, right? That's who he is. In chapter 18 then is when Elijah calls out King Ahab and they and they have a confrontation. I mean, this is way bigger, bigger than WWE wrestling or whatever that is, you know, or cage boxing. Or anything. And, he, and they have a gunfight at the OK Corral. Some of you are old enough to remember Westerns. On Mount Carmel, here's my air map. I love doing air maps. Here's the Mediterranean Sea. Here's Israel. Up at the top of Israel, right on the ocean, is Mount Carmel. Okay? It's not like a huge mountain like Rocky Mountains, but it's, it's up there. And, and so they have this confrontation, and the king calls all of the nation of Israel, said, call all the people of Israel up on the mountain. I don't know how you do all that. And all the prophets, all the pagan gods, prophets from Baal, they come to. And, and what happens is this is, um, this is Elijah calling out the prophets of Baal like that food program, uh, Beat Bobby Flay. Some of you ladies know that program. And he says, okay, here's the deal. You're going to build an altar. You're going to put the sacrifice on it. And whomever God will consume that sacrifice in fire, that's the God, right? And so he says, you go first. So these, all these guys build this and they chant and they run around and they do incantations and cut themselves, all these things. And Elijah is over here talking trash. Where's your God? Is he on vacation? Maybe he's in the bathroom. Literally, that's what it says. Maybe he's there, you know, all morning, for all morning. And, and, and nothing happens. And so Elijah builds his, has the people pour barrels of water over it in a ditch. Just, but, and he calls on God and bam, fire comes down from heaven, consumes the sacrifice. And of course, the people of Israel start saying, 
That God is God. That, that one right there. And then Elijah says, take out the prophets of Baal. And they put 400 plus prophets of Baal to the sword. Hasn't rained for over three years. And God says, go over here and I'll show you. And a little cloud comes up on the horizon. He says, get rolling. This is both paraphrase. Get rolling, Elijah, because it's going to rain. Hasn't rained for three years. And it says that Ahab gets in his chariot and goes to Jezreel, a town 17 miles away. And, and Elijah tucks his gown up into his belt and outruns the chariot. I don't know how you do that. Outruns, he's a Marvel character. And, you know, just outruns the chariot to Jezreel. I mean, it's been, in pastoral terms, it was a huge Sunday. Okay, let me just put it that way. It's a big day, you know. This is how it reads. Now Ahab, chapter 19, verses 1 through 3, told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, may the gods deal with me. Be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. So like in, in our culture, she would have texted him and said, by tomorrow, you are dead meat, dude. You know, you're, you're dust, right? And then this line, which is, which is a classic line. Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. And I'm saying, what are you talking about? Elijah wanted to run. I mean, I know what it feels like to want to run when I was that young college president and couldn't do enough in enough time or get enough money. I wanted to run 25 times in those years we were there. I mean, and I'm not going to ask for a show of hand, but have you, have you ever wanted to run? You say, well, not since yesterday, right? <laughs> Ruth has allowed me to tell this one day. When we, before that, when we were pastoring Illinois, they have these four young kids under the age of seven. And if you're a mom with four young kids, stay-at-home mom with four young kids, you know, you're tired, you know. And I was out having business lunches and being stimulated and learning new things. And I came in one day and she's standing at the door and she had been crying. And it was back in the day when families only had one car. And we only had one car. She put her hand out and she said, Dick, give me the keys to the car. And she's not a bombast. She's a very quiet person. Give me the knees. Give me the keys to the car. I'm going away and never coming back. <laughs> I'm going, oh, dear God, what's going on? And I gave her the keys, and she, and she got in the car and left. She said the problem was clearly she was depressed and not thinking clearly because she took the kids. That's what <laughs> I said. She, said. she said I went out and drove around for two hours and came home. So there you go. All of us have time. But that's us. We're not Elijah for Pete's sake. We don't call down fire from heaven and raise people from the dead. We don't. What is this? How in the world did that happen? I think it happens because in our lives, in that up and down and sideways journey, fear lurks just off stage. He's always prowling, always waiting for a way in, if you will. I mean, if you Google kinds of fear, there are 2,000 different kinds of fear. Now, babies have two big fears. One is the fear of falling, and the other is the fear of loud noises. But there are 2,000, everything from fear of small spaces to fear of peanut butter on the roof of your mouth. You say you're making that up. No, no, I'm serious. They just all kinds of things. Our, our granddaughter, Allison, who's 30 and has two of her own now, when she was three, her parents took her to Marine World, where they live in California. 
And that night she woke up crying and her mom went and said, what's, what's the matter? And she said, I'm scared. She said, what are you scared of? She said, I'm scared of whales. She said, well, there aren't any whales here. We're good. You know, I'm scared of seals. She said, I'm, no, no seals here. She said, and always remember, honey, that Jesus here is here with you. And Allison looked up and said, I'm scared of Jesus too. You know, so that's not good if you're scared of Jesus too. But we know, we don't always know what deep kinds of love are or boldness, but all of us know at some level what fear feels and looks like. So when he came to Beersheba and Judah, he's running for his life. He's taken his manservant with him and they're heading south. My air map again. Here's Mount Carmel. He runs 110 miles south to Beersheba on the south end of Israel, right? When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there while he himself went another day, a day's journey into the wilderness. So he's, he's walked, run, jogged, whatever, for 110 miles, and he leaves his guy there because what sliding into depression does, it, it pushes me toward isolation. I don't want to talk to people. I don't, I can't, I, I've, I've listened enough. I've talked, I don't know. I just want to do this. And it also immobilizes me, which we'll see in a moment. See, how, how depression, in, in my experience, how depression begins is when I begin believing that what I feel at this moment is the entire truth about my life. What I feel at this moment is the truth about my life. So he came to a broom bush, sat down under it and prayed. Here's a prayer that he might die. I've had enough, Lord. Ever been in a place where you say, that's it. Had enough. Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. Kill me. Then he lay down under the bush and fell asleep. Well, I guess he's just walked like almost 120 miles. I need a nap. Depression is just seeing four inches in front of my face. That's that characterizes it. I don't have enough energy to think about tomorrow. I just don't. I mean, clearly Elijah has fuzzy thinking. If he really wanted to die, he didn't have to walk 120 miles to die. He'd just stay up there. Jezebel was going to take him out. He didn't, he didn't need to come down here all this way, right? So fear and fatigue, if you're taking notes, feed depression. I'm under pressure. I'm not eating well. I'm just doing stuff or not doing stuff. When I was at that college, I would, uh, there were so many dollars to raise. Small college, but you got to raise millions of bucks. A lot of people fishing in the same pond. And day in and day out, this was on my mind. I'd wake up thinking about it, go to bed thinking about it. And I'd travel every weekend to speak at places like this. Very good friend of mine was a psychologist, close to me, family member. He knew me well. And one day he said, I've got a question for you. I said, what? He said, why do you travel every weekend to speak? I said, well, I'm going to promote the school, recruit students, raise dollars, and so forth. He said, um, could I make a suggestion as to why I think you travel every week? I said, sure. He said, I think as a pastor back in Illinois, you were trusted and you knew it. And now you're in this other role as part of what is called administration in the college environment. And sometimes there's a gulf of understanding between what is considered faculty and what is considered administration. And he said, you're used to being trusted and now you're not. 
And I think you're traveling every weekend to be affirmed because you know you can speak okay and apparently folks are encouraged by that. And you need that affirmation at this point in your life to keep going because I believe you're in moderate and growing depression. And he nailed it because I was mad. I was angry. I didn't know all the stuff that, that was going on when I accepted the position. I expected more from me. I expected more from others. It was a huge climb. We needed millions of dollars. And here's the deal. The problem was I could not see my way through. Now here I am years later. And apparently I made it through. I might be vintage point two, but I'm through, right? All at once an angel touched him, Elijah, and said, get up and eat. He looked around and there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and then lay down again. So he had fresh baked bread. It, for me, there's hardly anything better than fresh baked bread and cool water in the desert. But it, I, I'm saying, what do, you, what do you do with a God who when you ask him to kill you, responds by fixing you breakfast? What do you, I mean, this is the fire from heaven, God, for Pete's sake. This is the kill 400 plus prophets at one shot, God. This is the send a downpour after three years of drought, God, providing breakfast. Clearly, Almighty God cares for Elijah in this moment more than Elijah is able to care for himself. We have a lot of talk today about self-care. And it, it isn't just talk, it's real. And it's good. But there are some points in our life when circumstances happen in such a way that we, that we run out of juice, if you will, for self-care. And we need some bodies to help us. And God himself will come to that in a moment. And sometimes, you know, when I'm down under it, down deep, that's what I need is care. I don't need more information. I don't need more of this. What I need is more of that. And sometimes... And I've experienced this, to talk with another, to talk with somebody who's heard this a lot. We call them counselors or therapists. These are people who've heard it all. These are people for whom your story is not going to be new. This is one of a thousand stories they've heard. And, and, and they might be able to say, you know, here's something that I think you might want to think about or try. Or sometimes when it's severe, we take a, a med, some kind of medication to help us in that moment in time, we do it for headaches, we do it for other things, and sometimes there's such a stigma about that that we are unwilling to consider that. But I'm here to tell you that that's, you know, the God who creates the universe created all the ways in which we can find medicinal things as well. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, get up and eat. And here's the line. This is the title of the message today. Get up and eat for the journey is too much for you. The journey is too much for you. When the journey is too much, we need the intervention of Almighty God and loving friends and all those things. So he got up and ate and drank. Strengthened by that food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. There he went into a cave and spent the night. So here he is. He's sliding into this classical depression. He's been at Carmel. He walks 110 miles to get to Beersheba, goes another day, and there he's under the broom tree. He gets fed, and he gets up and walks 
another 260 miles to Mount Sinai, Mount Horeb. And, you know, even if you, if you exclude Sabbaths, it's still seven and a half miles a day in the desert, right? It's not like wandering through the foothills here. It's, it's this tough journey. And my question is, why do you think Elijah did that? My thesis is, because when, when you're a believer, especially when, when you believe there's a God that cares, I tend to go back to places where I knew God showed up in my life. And Mount Sinai was the place where God gave that other prophet, Moses, the law. That's where God spoke, the Ten Commandments, right there. I believe our, we tilt or we tend toward going back to places, either in our heads or in physical reality, where that happens. So I'm, this, I'm at this small college, and every once in a while I'd go into the chapel, and there'd be an, usually an older person or older couple who were there. And I'd introduce myself, and they'd say, you know, I'm so-and-so, and we live in New Mexico or... Montana or Connecticut. And we were just out in the area and we're graduates of 19, uh, 1955. And the, the dreams we had when we were here as college students, some of them came true, but some didn't. And we really got thrown some curves and we've had to adjust and so But we were here and we wanted to come back to the place where on a Thursday night in a missions service, God spoke to us. It was real. We sat right over there in that seat. And, and it was real. And even though the rest of the years haven't worked out like we would have designed it ourselves, God is still faithful, like we sang about, and we wanted to come back and be in this place. And so Elijah goes back to that place. And when, when he gets there, because when the journey's too much for me, I'll try anything. I'll try everything in order to find some relief. And the word of the Lord came to him when he gets to the mountain. What are you doing here, Elijah? And I'm going, whoa, whoa, wait, wait. I just have walked like 360 miles over a couple of months. And I get here to try to honor God and get some answers. And God says, what are you doing here? I mean, that's enough to make me more depressed, right? But, and he's saying, I'm God's guy. And he kicks in the tape or the soundtrack or the, plays the audio clip. And this is what it sounds like. I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. And I am the only one left. And now they're trying to kill me too. Well, that statement is at least half right. The Lord said, go stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart, shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. I mean, these are traumatic moments. If you, we, we know a little bit about wind, but Ruth and I from California, we know about earthquakes. I mean, big earthquakes. And there's no place to run. Everything's moving. After the earthquake came a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face, went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. 
I think God was showing Elijah that he can use anything. He can use wind, earthquake, fire, shatter rocks, blow stuff up. He does that on the backstroke, and he's not always in it. It doesn't have to be his presence for him to do that. Because you have two mountains. You have one mountain where fire, God was in it, bang, consumed the sacrifice. Mount Sinai, fire, but God wasn't in it, if you will. And when Elijah hears this, the voice said to him again, what are you doing here, Elijah? And he gives him the same feedback, you know, rejected your covenant, tore down your altars, put your prophets to death. I'm the only one left. And now they're trying to kill me too. Here's the thing. And you heard this last week. How we think shapes how we feel. Feelings are a response to how we think about something. Feelings are a response to information we get. You know how it is. You get some information on a Tuesday, and boy, it just puts you down for whatever kind of information, right? And then on Friday morning, you get information that is different than that, and it's better than that, and your feelings change like boom. It's a crazy thing, but it's true how that works. And here's the thing that, that... Elijah's had a long haul. He's thought a lot. And the things I choose to believe in my head about myself, about whether it's childhood or associations, the places I live in my head, the music lyrics that I swim in, the people or sites that I follow, the trusted mentors that I have, all of these are inputs to how I think about things and they result in how I feel about things. The good news for me is that, and here's the fourth thought, is that God meets us wherever we are. God meets us where we are, whether we're on the mountaintop, whether we're down in the doldrums or in the basement, whatever it is. I, I look back at certain dates. Fall 1948, South India, I have this thing called malignant malaria. I'm six years old. I'm delirious for two days with 106 temp. And an Anglican missionary lady knocks on the door of our room there up in the hills of South India says, I, I feel like I'm supposed to pray for Dickie. That's what they call me. She came in, prayed for me. My fever broke that night. He meets us where we are when the journey seems too much for us. Or February of 1959, my freshman at Cal Berkeley, you've heard me talk about that, freshman at Cal Berkeley, and I'm wandering. I'm a church kid, but Cal Berkeley ain't church. And I'm out there wandering around trying to find my way, and I, and I end up going to a missions conference and go over and take my Bible and just open it up and some light falls on a passage and it's, you are the salt of the earth. If the salt has become tainted, how will the earth be salted? And in that moment, it turned me. Just that single piece of scripture got to me, if you will. Christmas of 62 when my parents' marriage was coming apart and I spent that Christmas on campus by myself. Loneliest time in my life. But God was present. Or the spring of 1970, Church planters, we have riots at the University of Illinois with 5,000 National Guard troops with bayonets on campus and we had curfews in town. We thought it was the end of the world. But God was present because in that upheaval, the Spirit of God had a chance. When people are disoriented, <laughs> the Spirit of God has a chance to work. Or, in 19, or at the age of 51 in the spring of 93, in between being a college president and who knows what, in, in that time of walking... God was present. We ended up going to Washington, D.C. for 15 years, which was a profound time. And then nine years ago this month, when Ruth, my wife, 
went, as I put it, went down on the mountain in Estes Park with sudden cardiac death. And we didn't know. The doc said, we don't know if she'll ever wake up. And 10, 10 hours into the warming up process, she woke up and people around the world were praying. God meets us where we are because God is absolutely committed to our wholeness. Here's the instruction that God gave to Elijah. He'd walked 350 miles down here. The Lord said to him, go back the way you came. Part of it, I think, is he was saying to Elijah, part of why you're here is that you thought yourself here. And it, it, had, it had basis because he had this tremendous experience showing the power of God. I mean, most of us think, well, I'll get down if bad things happen. Bad things weren't happening to Elijah. All these good things happened on Mount Carmel. But even if it's spiritual warfare, it's still warfare and you get battle fatigue, PTSD, whatever it is, it still can wear you down and out. And he says, go back the way you came, go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, anoint Haziel king over Aram, anoint Jehu son of Nimshi king over Israel and anoint Elisha son of Shaphat from Abel Mahola to succeed you as prophet. Jehu will put to death any who escaped the sword. Haziel, uh, excuse me, escaped the sword of Haziel and Elisha will put to death any who escaped the sword of Jehu. He, he says to them, go back the way you came. You started with me, go back there. I'll give you a plan and three guys. And I see it in my mind, these guys standing like the points of the compass, back to back, ready to take all comers. Because when I'm down here, I need somebody to stand with me no matter what. I'll give you a plan and three guys. You'll confront an evil king. And Elijah, it needs to be said, didn't follow through on everything that God told him to do. But nevertheless, he gave him the plan. And then this closing line. Yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal and whose mouths have not kissed him. This is God's way of saying, by the way, Elijah, you are not the only one. You feel like the only one, but you are not the only one. When the journey is too much. I close with this. So the lady comes into me and sits down and says, I, you know, I've had a, more than a blue Monday. I, it's, a, it's been a blue month, maybe a blue year. What do you say? I'm a 29-year-old pastor. She's older than I by some years. And I could see it in her face. And I had this thought, had this hunch. Sometimes the Holy Spirit shows up in a hunch you have. And I said, I think we have a choice here, Sally. I can go with my feelings. You can believe your feelings. But you do, you do have an option. And that is to believe the truth of Scripture. So these are intention, okay? My feelings and his word. A lot of times. Right? And I said, why don't we look at Romans, the eighth chapter? And Paul, the apostle, had written about all of creation groaning and all these things happening and sort of a, the challenges we face in life between the spirit and the flesh in the first part of that chapter. And then he says this in Romans eight twenty eight. but all things work together for good to those who are called according to his purpose. But, but he doesn't leave it there. He goes on to explain why it would, I think, in verses 31 through 39. And I said this, and I'd never done this before. I said, 
why don't we read this text and where, well, let me, let me give you a prescription. I'm not a doctor, but I want you to go home and morning and evening, when you get up and before you go to bed, stand in front of a mirror and read these verses out loud. And everywhere that there is a personal pronoun, I want you to put your name in whatever forms you choose to do it. And just do that for a week. And then if you still need to talk, come back and see me. She never came back to see me. She was still a part of the congregation. She was. And here's how it would read if I were to put my name where the personal pronouns are. What then shall Richard Foth, this is Romans 8, 31 and following. What, shen, what then shall Richard Foth say in response to these things, the, all these happening? If God is for Dick, who can be against Foth? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for Richard Bruce Foth. How will he not also along with him graciously give Foth all things? Who will bring any charge against Dick Foth whom God has chosen? It's God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God in interceding for Dick. Like right now, <laughs> Jesus is at the right hand saying, you know, help, help the vintage guy down there at Windsor, you know. Who shall separate Richard Bruce Foth from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? And I said to her, whatever makes you feel troubled, wherever the hard place is in your life, where you feel persecuted, misunderstood, or, or famine, just hungry, or whatever feel, makes you feel naked, totally vulnerable, totally exposed, Whatever that is in your language and your words for this day, say those words. Don't say Paul's words. Say your words. And over my life since then, I have put various words in there to say, who shall separate me from, from you in those circumstances? And, and then the conclusion, no. In all these things, Richard Bruce Foth is more than a conqueror through him who loved Foth. For I'm convinced, he's convinced, that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, anything else in all creation will be able to separate Dick Foth from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Twice a day, I said, morning and evening. That's not magic. That's me saying, I'm going to trust God for his word and count on him to help change the feelings because this gives us the whole view and the high view it's a plan I just close with this when the journey's too much for you it is not too much for the spirit of God that lives in you when the journey is too much for me it's not too much for the Spirit of God that lives in me. God, let me relax enough to let you help me in this time by trusting your truth. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word that is true. Thank you for the people in your word that are just like us, different callings, 
different times in history, different circumstances, but challenged by the same reality. And in, in our desert moments, in the times when we don't think we'll ever make it to the other side of whatever it is, or get out from under whatever it is, we just submit ourselves one more time to you and thank you for your truth and your people. In Jesus' name we pray. We hope you encountered the love and power of Jesus in today's service. If you're interested in giving, for joining serving opportunities, and much more, visit TimberlineChurch.org connect. Have a great week. Go be the church and let love live.